Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Switzerland this time. And I'm super excited about having our next guest on uh, his. He he is somebody that I reached out to uh, about a month ago or so through our office, and uh, his name's Raymond Ibrahim, and I think he's written some things that will be great for you as our listeners to to listen to. Raymond, you still there? Yeah, hi, Eugene. Good to be with you. Great to be with you as well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, before we jump in knee-deep into some of the questions that I would like to ask, could you just take a minute and introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. Um, Raymond Ibrahim, as you said, um, I, uh, my background really professionally and personally has been very much uh, immersed in topics that deal with the Middle East and Islam, especially my family are what's called uh, Coptic Christians from Egypt uh, that immigrated here, not least due to the discrimination that was going on at that time, which has only gotten much worse. It's built into persec- outright persecution now. At any rate, I was born here in the United States, and uh, I grew up bilingual, speaking, of course, English and Arabic, which I'm fluent at. And um, I, I naturally gravitated. Uh, I majored in history at... Um, and I studied, uh, you may know him, Victor Davis Hanson. He's become extra popular these days, um, historian, military historian. I studied with him back in the um, you know mid to late 90s at California State University, Fresno. And I majored in history. And then I gravitated from history into that nexus that sort of dealt with Islam, um, the Byzantine and Islamic context and warfare, which is really the initial um time that Islam and the West, as we would call it, or the Christian world, came into conflict right around the 7th century, which is also when Islam was born, of course. <laughs> and that's another topic, you know, the, the moment it's born <laughs> immediately goes and becomes militant and violent. Uh, anyway, and um, then, you know, so profession, so that's sort of my background academically. And then I went to Georgetown University, which is a leading school in Arab studies, um, and I got a job at the Library of Congress as a linguist at the in the Near East section, or it was called um, the African Middle Eastern Division, um, the Near East section. And while there, <clears throat> I um, I discovered some Arabic writings by Al Qaeda. This is right around 2004. And um, long story short, they got translated. I translated them and got a book deal. And it, was, it became the Al Qaeda Reader, which apparently had a large impact on you know the dialogue with radical Islam from the Western perspective. Um, that book. And then from that point on, I, I really, right around from two, the book came out in 2007, finally. And from that point till now, I've been, I left the Library of Congress and uh, for a while as the Associate Director of the Middle East Forum. And then I've since been basically what's called a fellow at a, at a bunch of think tanks. So my job is basically to research and write on this topic of Islam. And um, my other books since, which also capture my fields of interest. One is called Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians, which came out in 2013. And that's another topic, which again, for personal reasons, is very 
um, near to me, which is the persecution of indigenous Christian minorities throughout the Islamic world, because as we'll, we'll discuss briefly, of course, the Islamic world, as we know it, was at one point the heart of the Christian world. Um, and then in 2018, I also wrote Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. And that's the subtitle, which, again, captures its significance. The book is really a history of the military engagements between Islam and the West, and all of which are very little known uh, for, for obvious reasons, which we can touch on. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, and I just actually finished another book, which will be out in about two, three months, called Defenders of the West. The Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam, um, which is kind of like it's a companion book to Sword and Scimitar, but whereas Sword and Scimitar focuses on decisive battles, this book basically focuses on decisive men, um, heroes and defenders, and really, you know, puts a contrast on Western leadership today, you know, vis-a-vis how it used to be, um, you know, in the pre-modern era, especially in the context of Islamic Aggression. So that's basically what I do. I write and I speak on these topics, um, and uh, that's what I've been doing for quite some time. It is fascinating to me that you are a, a, a Coptic Christian from uh, from Egypt, just because. I mean, I've I've been there several times in in Cairo to the mountain that you're probably familiar with of Simon the Tanner, where uh, the you got the Christian village there just at that foothill, and um, and the, that's where they you know gather all the garbage every day, and that garbage, without exaggeration, is like over ten feet high in certain places, and just. The smell is putrid that they bring in from the city and just just dump there. And um, I, we just released a book on a woman that you might not have heard of. I'm not sure. Her name is Miriam Ibrahim, and she was thrown in prison um, um, in Sudan because she refused to say the jihada. Uh, she was thrown in prison with her uh, infant son while she was pregnant, tortured, sentenced to death by hanging. Um, she was able to escape that. And even though she escaped from Sudan, she finds herself today living in America where she shared a Coptic Christian um, uh, post on Facebook just last month to remember the, those that were killed by ISIS. And uh, she was booted off without a warning or anything of, on, of Facebook forever. She's banned for life now on, on Facebook. For for just I mean, sharing uh, about the Coptic Christians that were that were slaughtered by by ISIS, if you remember that that image of them being marched out onto the beach and then and then uh, killed, um, she just shared yeah. about and it wasn't a video, it wasn't a graphic photo, there was no death, blood, killing. It was just that image of them being marched out and said, you know, please remember them on this day, and um, and Facebook blocked her forever. Yeah, so Mary Mabrim, I actually do know her, and I even met her personally at, oh, wow. a, at, at what's called called um, Coptic Solidarity International, which is an organization by that name that meets annually, or used to at least, before um, the COVID lockdowns and so forth. And I met her there, and uh, yeah, she was very sympathetic and um, to everything that we're talking about uh, right now, and I know her story well. In fact, I actually wrote a lot about it. But, you know, more to the point, what you're talking about and her posting, I, I don't know exactly the image you're referring to. You're talking about the men who are in their jumpsuits in the sand yeah. and, yeah. you know, the Islamic terrorists holding a knife to the throat, right? You know, the still shot when they're carving him. But I don't know what it is about Facebook, but I can tell you that when it comes to the topic of Christian persecution and especially anything against the cops, they will ban you because the same exact thing has happened to me where I just, I put a little article referencing to that uh, incident that happened, I think, in 2015 when they killed those 20 
cops and one Ghanaian. Um, and they just took me, took it down instantaneously. And I've had other people who are just human rights activists who just say, you know, any, anything mild about Egypt and it gets immediately taken down. Um, and uh, so that's, so everything you're telling me makes perfect sense and I've experienced it and so many other people have experienced it. And it's just very telling about what's going on with social media. Well, the, one of the reasons why I'm so excited that you're here is that, I mean, it's in, it's obviously in your nature that you're, you're a historian. And some of the things that you that you share from history are things that most of us in the West are simply not knowledgeable about at all. Um, I think I, my my background is in the in the U.S. Marine Corps, and so and when you become a Marine, you have to learn about you know what was called the War of Tripoli. You have to you have, you sing about it. Um, it's it's in the Marine Corps hymn that you you know you you sing from the from the halls of Montezuma to to the shores of Tripoli, and um, and so we we sing about this this battle, but we don't really know too much about it, um, you know about why it took place or or you know it's not taught so much. It just said that you know there were ships that were taken, um, and uh, and the Mar- this was the very first foreign war of the United States military. In fact. Uh, not military, uh, Navy. And uh, so this was the very first foreign war of the United States, and this was the first implementation of the U.S. Navy abroad. And uh, in fact, many people would argue that it was the Battle of Tripoli that uh, made the reinstatement of the the, uh, Department of Navy necessary. Um, You write about something, and I know that you you and I are just calling. I didn't write to you like any questions or anything like that, uh, but I would love just to hear... Uh, what you can remember or what you feel like sharing as it pertains to that section of history that most Westerners may know nothing about where there 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 was this this battle that took place uh, in n- northern Africa yeah absolutely everything first of all everything you say is correct and I'm in agreement with and um, you know it, it's it's amazing because uh, what I usually do is I um, the, uh, the bar, as they're known as the Barbary Wars or you know, Tripoli, the Tripoli War and all that. Um, as I mentioned in my last book, Sword and Scimitar, it's a, it's a long chronicle of all the various battles. And that one is what comes at the very last, you know, one or two pages of this 352, you know, page book. So my point is, it really, it shows you the continuum of Islamic aggression and violence vis-a-vis non-West, non-Muslims in, in the context of the book, Westerners, Christians. Um, because it's unwavering. And so, long story short, you know, just to set up the context, um, in the 7th century, Islam is born, according to the Islamic tradition. Um, and again, according to Islamic historiography, Muhammad sends a message, a message to the Emperor Heraclius, telling him, you know, and this is, of course, the Emperor Heraclius of what we call the Byzantine Empire. He, this is what, this is the Roman Empire. This is how Christians back then saw it, and that's how Muslims saw it. In fact, that's how it's called in, in writings. It's the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the term Byzantine is a new one that we use to, you know, to signify it, but really creates problems. At any rate, he sent a letter to him telling him, abandon Christianity, embrace Islam, and have peace. Um, and the formulation of the wording basically suggests that, you know, if you don't embrace it, it's ultimatum. You either embrace Islam or, or, you know, or else. And of course, the emperor rejected it. And then jihad was declared, and right from the get-go, two years after, in fact, under Muhammad, um, he tried to wage a war against the Romans. There's a whole surah called, you know, a room, the Romans, because he was trying to uh, fight them in the Tabuk campaign right before he died. Anyway, he dies, and then starting around 634, he dies in 632, 
the Muslims are all unified, the Arabs, and they wage jihad after jihad, you know, at these pivotal battles, the Battle of Yarmouk and Ajnadin and so forth. Long story short, from 636, okay, the first battle with a major battle at Yarmouk, to, uh, or, or to put it differently, 100 years after Muhammad died, he, he dies in 632. In 732, the, by, set, by 732, the Muslims had conquered all of North Africa and the Middle East. So I'm giving them their modern names, you know, Iraq and Syria, um, eastern portions of Turkey, and then Egypt and Libya and Tunisia and Morocco and Algeria. They had conquered Spain in 711, 712. And in 732, 100 years after Muhammad's death, they were now fighting in the middle of France, and that's the year of the Battle of Tours, of course, where finally their um, expansion into the Christian West is put to a halt. Um, and then, of course, it spills over, and um, it, you know, all the Mediterranean islands are ransacked and conquered, and etc. And then you get the Turkish iteration of the Jihad, the Turks come and become the new Jihad standard bearers, the Arabs kind of become more or less obsolete. And now you, you get all these attacks on Constantinople, which started, of course, way back during, you know, a little right, right after Muhammad's time, especially in the 8th century. Um, so the long story short, and, you know, right now, and, and this is why you get the Crusades, of course. This is what one thing, one thing that always vexes me. You know, whenever you hear, if, if you mention the topic of Christian-Muslim um, animosity, historic, everyone begins with the Crusades. And and why? Because, well, you got Christians marching into Islamic land, so the story goes, uh, committing violence. Well, what they don't tell you is the 400 years preceding the Crusades, Muslims had swallowed up three-quarters of what was then the Christian world through violence. Um, again, people forget that nations like Egypt and Syria were profoundly more Christian than Europe in the 8th century, in the 7th century. Isn't it um, isn't so it true that Coptic? Event. I mean, you you know more than I do, but I think I remember somewhere that Coptic means common or or something of that nature. What does well, Coptic yeah, well, mean? Um, I think you mean the Greek word koine okay. means common. Coptic Coptic really is a um, so the the word for Egyptian or Egypt is in Greek, as in most of our words come from Greek, um, is Egyptos. And when the Arabs entered and they saw the, the Egyptians, who, um, who were all Christian at that time, they basically took the middle syllable, Aigiptos, uh, Gipt, you know, and in the Arabic language, it's pronounced Kipt. And then in English, it became translated into Copt. Um, so the word Copt really etymologically is connected to the word Egyptian, but now it signifies Christian Egyptians, because at that time, they were um, you know, all Christian. Okay, but that makes uh, sense because so yeah. many people were telling me that you know when the when when the jihad first came into Egypt that it was pretty common that most people in Egypt were Christian, and in fact, like the, oh, yeah. the largest libraries for Christianity were in Egypt at that time for Christianity, and um, and so there 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 it was just so common that uh, that the the people were Christian. Yeah, yeah, and and that's really the point I'm trying to make that. You know, when you talk to your average Westerner, as you indicated earlier, you know, there's all, you know, a lot of uh, uh, ignorance about true history, especially when you go to those eras. And when you talk to the average Westerner and you mention you know, Egypt or Syria or Algeria or Turkey, none of them will think that it has anything to do with Christianity. And if there is any Christians today, they're somehow, you know, um, they, they were added on after Islam. 
And of course, yeah, that's and you just reality, you just yeah. pointed out something that is really big, huge. One, yeah. whenever people hear about the Crusades, they always think, "Oh, those were bad, evil, violent, brutal, barbaric, um, invading lands." Uh, but you mentioned that before the First Crusade, there's like 400 years of aggression. That's longer than America right. has been a country. To put that in perspective, yeah. <laughs> that's longer. Yeah. So Christians were suffering aggression before the very first reaction to that aggression. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, that, that time frame that you just said is important. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that that time frame is important for us as your listener to, to be able to right. understand. that that That's not just like, okay, turn the other cheek. That's like 400 no. years of cheeks. Right, right. And, and then... And on top of all that, right before the crusade, the aggression had really peaked. Um, you had the, basically the Turks, uh, this time they're the Seljuk Turks, who are just running amok in Asia Minor, which is one of the oldest Christian territories. That's where St. Paul wrote most of his letters to churches that were in Asia Minor. And um, they were basically, long story short, they had, especially after the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, um, you, according to the sources, literally hundreds of thousands of Christians were either butchered or or um, enslaved, or and, and thousands in Armenia alone. You know the records are thousands of churches that were intentionally desecrated and burned, and so forth. This is in the years right before the Crusades, and the Eastern Emperor, Roman Emperor Alexios. That's exactly what he was contacting the Pope and complaining about. And if you look at the source, and, and again, and this is in my book, Sword and Scimitar, and in the new book. But if you look at it, um, that is what the Pope and the Christians were talking about. With, basically, we need to, if we're real Christians, we need to go help our Eastern co-religionists because they are undergoing, uh, you know, massacres and mass enslavement and their women are being raped and their men are being raped and, and their churches are being defiled. So that's what it was about. And yet today, you know, you mentioned the Crusades and all of a sudden the image, uh, the popular image, thanks not least to Hollywood, is a bunch of, you know, white racists and xenophobes. I mean, this is very anachronistic, of course, but... That's how it's portrayed, who are going to colonize and who need to make money and who are using religion as a cover. And that's just, I mean, again, you know, that's just ahistorical and contradicts what really went on and what was happening. And you don't have to agree with the Crusades or like the Crusades, but the point is you have to understand what really brought them about and initiated them. And it's not what most people try to say it is, which is Islamophobia or some sort of religious jingoism and whatever. Um, it was actually trying to help our, your fellow man who was being massacred by Muslims and in the name of Islam. All right. Anyway, um, so then the, and then the Crusades eventually themselves fail right around 1291. The, all the Christians are ejected from the Holy Land with the fall of Acre. And, um, and, and, and then uh, I was mentioning the Turks. So then the Turks, the, especially the Ottomans, come in and get into Europe and conquer Constantinople in 1453. And the Balkans, much of them, well, you know, until... And this goes on until 1683, when you have the Ottomans now surrounding Vienna, literally 300,000 strong army, uh, right around Vienna, trying to conquer. And this is the famous battle where you have, you know, John Sobieski and his hussars and so forth, and they prevail, and Islam is beaten. Okay, now, and now it's important to remember that all these battles, and I didn't even mention Spain, which was a microcosm of jihad and, and crusade, um, because as I said, the Muslims conquered it in 712, and it, and there were in the far north of Spain, you still had a little free zone, um, and from there, and they even called it the mustard seed, you know, a little mustard seed, according to the parable that grows something great. So from there, they had the Reconquista, 
and centuries later, basically, you know, you, until uh, 1492, really, um, that's when Islam is finally neutralized and ejected from Granada and so forth. So, uh, again, it has to be underscored that all these, even if you know these battles and wars and, both, and some people do in stories, it's almost always presented in a very um, hygienic way that does not bring in the religious element, especially the Islamic religious element. So people will tell you, yeah, these wars happen, but so what? Battles always happen. You know, Europeans fought Europeans, Muslims fought Muslims. This had nothing to do with ideology and so forth. And the problem is, again, if you look at the real sources, the primary sources, not these secondary books written, which eliminate, you know, the primary sources, it is fundamentally all about religion. And so if you think about ISIS, the Islamic State, and the things that they have said, so when they justify their atrocities or whatever, they cite the Quran. Um, they cite Muhammad's example and all that sort of thing. That also happens all throughout history. So the Muslims who that I'm referring to who were engaged in these jihads against Europe and so forth, they always cited the Quran. They always cited Muhammad just the same way that ISIS does. So that is not. So that has always been part of the religion. Okay. Now I, I, I left you off at 1683 with Vienna, and now we can finally come to the Barbary Wars, which start like around 1780, and, and or that's when hostilities begin. Basically, Barb Muslims from North Africa start attacking American vessels, um, and this is after independence, and they start enslaving their soldiers and taking them to you know, Algiers and Tripoli, and mocking them and killing them and doing all sorts of horrific things. To them, and long story short, you know, the, the, the pivotal point comes where Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they meet with uh, Barbary's ambassador, and they ask him why, you know, and, and, you know, these are good enlightened folk, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they don't know anything about um, Islam at all, because by this time, you know, it's late 18th century, um, and these are Europe Europeans who were born and raised in America, to them, Islam is, you know, it's such a distant you know, superstition or whatever. So they ask him, you know, why, what, what have we done to you, basically? Why are you attacking our people? And the ambassador responds in a way that is just 100% pure ISIS, okay? Uh, I actually have the excerpt right in front of me. Um, so they asked him, why are you doing it? Here's Thomas Jefferson's letter to Congress, okay? He writes, and, I'll, and it's dated March 28, 1786. And he writes, I quote, we took the liberty to make some inquiries concerning the grounds of their, the Barbary's, pretensions to make war upon nations who had done them no injury, and observed that we considered all mankind as our friends who had done us no wrong nor had given us any provocation. The ambassador, the Barbary ambassador, answered us that it was founded on the laws of their prophet, that it was written in their Quran, that all nations who should not have acknowledged their authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them, wherever they could be found, and to make slaves of all they could take as prisoners, and that every Muslim, Muslim who should be slain in battle was sure to go to paradise. So here's, you know, here's a, this is an ISIS explanation, right? I mean, this is, uh, we're attacking you, we're killing you, we're doing what we're doing, not because you did anything bad, 
but because the Quran calls on us to do so, Muhammad says to do just, so. Just to highlight what you're saying here, right? Just just to highlight what you're saying here for our listeners that are listening. Sometimes when there are, you know, when there's aggression or battle or attacks or a terrorist attack or ISIS or or Al Qaeda or whatever, oftentimes it's said to be a reaction to America's involvement in the Middle East, whether it's Israel, whether it's oil, whether it's you know some sort of uh, political meddling. Um, but this is before there is a state of Israel. What you're talking about is before there was a state of Israel. America was brand new. We didn't even have a chance to like get into oil and foreign meddling and, and all. We had no foreign really involvement at all as a brand new country. And yet we were being attacked right off the bat with, with our trade ships being taken. Well, so you bring up a really, of course, what you're saying is accurate. And the point you bring up, which I'd like to emphasize is, you know, since 9-11, the, the, the go-to answer in, in amongst the talking heads and the analysts and so-called experts um, has been that Muslims have grievances. And that's why they're angry. So whenever a Muslim attacks or does something, including 9-11, it's because they have grievances. And the list is forever and long. And it's, it's from Israel you know, to uh, colonialism, to the Crusades. You know, you get this long list, and Muslims are so angry, and that's why this is happening. But, uh, you know, and to go back to that book I wrote when I was at the Library of Congress, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it out is uh, Al-Qaeda was actually a master of this. In Al-Qaeda's communiques to the West, which the BBC and all, you know, all, all these Western media were very quick to translate and, and transmit, to the Western public was basically that we attacked you, America, because you you attacked us first, and it's and, and and they would say, you know, this is reciprocal treatment, and if you stop, we'll stop. That was the message, and um, but then the the writings that I came across in, in Arabic were not directed towards obviously Americans but fellow Muslims, and they said the exact opposite. They basically said things like, um, you know, Americans are infidels. We have to fight them on principle. Not because of anything they've done, uh, but because of who they are. And the same thing with Israelis and Europeans and everyone. Basically, they sounded just like ISIS. And then ISIS, to their credit, um, they actually were honest enough. They, they came out very publicly and asserted in, a, in, a, in some publication that they have. I have it somewhere documented on my website. And they basically the title of it was Why We Fight You or Why We Hate You. And their very first reason, they said, we hate you first and foremost because the Quran commands us to hate you and to war on you because you're infidels. And they go so far as to point out that and it, even though you've done things that we don't like, that's not the primary reason we fight you. Even if you were good to us and even if you were fair to us, we would still have to fight you and hate you. In fact, the Quran calls on Muslims to hate non-Muslims. That's uh, in 6040, Surah 60, uh, 64, I'm sorry where it calls out, it says, Muslims, you have an example in Abraham, who, because he said, hate and enmity will live in my heart to his family until they be, become Muslims, basically. As, um, I, as I'm Abraham, listening so to Muslim, you, everyone's a Muslim. as I'm listening to you, Raymond, and everything that you're sharing is is so informative for, for us as, as listeners. One of the things that I'm, I'm fascinated by, because this history has been erased, and this is not the first time that history has been kind of hidden a little bit. You know, like, like I was saying earlier, as I was writing Miriam Ibrahim's story together with her, she said one of the reasons why she didn't come out with her book earlier is because there was a there was a lot of pressure to for her not to talk about the Sharia law. And she said, it is impossible for me to tell my story 
without talking about Sharia law because otherwise you won't understand why I was arrested, why I was sentenced to death, why I was sentenced to 100 lashes, why I was being beaten, why I was allowed to live until I gave birth to my child. Um, and so you're talking about you know generations of, of history kind of being erased that you have just in this short time uncovered for us. Um, and I know that your time is short and I'm, I, I could sit and talk to you all day, especially on this subject. I feel like we just started and scratched the surface. Um, as we come to a close, I would love to ask you one last question. Why is it, do you think, that people in modern day that have benefited so much from Christian society are so eager to dismiss it and, and so eager to erase like some of the more hideous things. I mean, because if we look at uh, the the LGBTQ community, if we look at the feminists, if we look at some of these movements that should embrace, at least if you don't embrace society, Christianity, uh, maybe you wouldn't run to embrace Islam, yet they are. Uh, there is this overwhelming, what you're talking about with, you know, the trying to uh, forget about the reason for the Crusades or what happened to the Crusades, what led to the Crusades. As you talk about the Barbary Pirates War with Jefferson's Bible, I mean, if we just got into Jefferson's Bible, for instance, that would be, or, sorry, not Jefferson's Bible, Jefferson's Quran. Uh, that would be yeah. a very interesting topic. But why is it in your all of your studies, uh, all of your research, all of the books that you have written, why do you think it is that there's such an eagerness today to to oblige that idea of getting rid of that history, erasing it, uh, sweeping it under the rug, trying to hide it? Yeah. You know, that, first of all, that's an, that's an, uh, that is the pivotal question, um, because our problem right now, if you really think about it, isn't so much Muslim or jihad and Islam and all that is really a symptom. Um, it could easily, so as opposed to the historical issue where I was talking about where Islam was an actual force to be reckoned with, and it, in, it invaded by force lands and conquered and enslaved and so forth, right now everything that Islam is doing is sort of being enabled by the West. Um, because, you know, you could do something as simple as, and some countries have in Eastern Europe, and say, well, we don't want mosques on our land, or we don't want Muslim migrants, and guess what, your problem is solved. Um, so a lot of what's happening right now is because Western elements are enabling it and empowering it. And, you know, you're talking about Miriam Ibrahim and, you know, the censorship. It's really gotten bad because on March 15th, ironically, the Ides of March, the U.N. named that date forevermore as Combating Islamophobia Day. And oh, so now, wow. you know, now know the that. U.N. Is, has waited. Yeah, so now, one as if it wasn't ossified and, and, and fossilized enough, the idea... Uh, or, or, or frozen, you know, the, the freedom of speech vis-a-vis -vis Islam. Um, now it's it's got even worse uh, with this idea of Islamophobia, and, and the UN basically has put Islam on a pedestal because now only one religion out of all is actually protected in this way. Um, so, but to your main question, you know, the point of you know why all these Western elements? I honestly believe, you know, you can give a lot of reasons and historical reasons and so forth, but fundamentally at this point, I've reached, I've reached the conclusion that it's just, its essence is purely anti-Christian animus. Mm. Um, so yeah, all these I groups that. that pop up and, and, yeah. and seem secular wow. and, you know, they don't have anything against any religion, um, and yet you always find them siding against Christianity, and even though these groups claim to be liberal, you will find them siding with anyone and anything who is a liberal, wow. as long as it's yeah. against Christianity, including, of course, Islam. And so here you see your supposed, you know, 
you know, all these leftists who somehow love and celebrate Islam and side with Muslims, even though Muslims um, are in the habit of, throw, you know, executing homosexuals and being, you know, basically it's a very patriarchal, very misogynistic society. Um, the reason for that is because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the ultimate enemy of all these groups, whether it's LGBT, whether it's Islam and Jihad, is, I think, Christian civilization, Christian uh, mores. And there's this concerted effort, and it has been for a long time, to really wipe out um, from the consciousness of modern Western people, including, if not especially Christians, the historic Christian heritage uh, that they have, and um, which I was even discussing a little bit, and which helped keep Europe alive, really, um, against, uh, for one thing, jihad. Well, so Raymond, it has been. Really, I think it's, yeah, yeah, thank you so much, brother. I I know that your time is is precious. You have an appointment that you have right. to get to, but I have to I have to say it has been a real joy to have you on here. You're welcome back anytime. Our listeners would love to to hear more from you for for sure. If somebody is interested in your books, you've named a couple like Defender of the West. You've talked about uh, the the Al Qaeda reader. Uh, there are so many different books that you have written. Uh, is there a website that our listeners can go to? to find out more information about you and purchase your books? You sure. Best place to go is just my website, which is aptly called RaymondDebrahim.com, all one word, R-A-Y-M-O-N-D-I-B-R-A-H-I-M. And um, on the right side, you'll see all my books, um, links to all my books. And um, yeah, the newest one's there. It's still not out. It's coming out in a couple of months. But I would suggest to anyone who's interested, especially in the topics that we discussed of a historical nature to get um, my book Sword and Scimitar, which is really it documents all the things that we talked about, including you know, from, from the very first conflict all the way to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, what we were discussing, the Tripoli Wars. Um, so yeah, best place to go, website. Okay, so if you go to his website, it's Raymond, it's actually his name, RaymondIbrahim.com, RaymondIbrahim.com, that's Ibrahim spelled I-B-R-A-H-I-M.com. Thank you so much, brother. It was a real joy talking to you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and sharing so much. Absolutely. I enjoyed it, Eugene. Thanks for having me. Thanks, brother. God bless you. You too. And thank you for joining us for another Back to Jerusalem podcast. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Switzerland. God bless you.